the transcendental dependent arising which I have been explaining over the past few days is one of the many discourses of the Buddha that goes from the point where we're at right now to complete liberation, to complete freedom, and shows all the steps on the way. This one, like all the others that go that way, when they concern meditation, goes through the calm meditation to insight and from insight to liberation. This one explains, this particular discourse explains it in a very succinct and uh, very abbreviated manner. But because of that, one needs to have more detail about it in order to actually use it. So the point where we're at was the first point, dukkha. Not non-fulfillment, unsatisfactoriness. That's where it starts. It starts with that, where we find ourselves now. It is the human condition. And having understood it, in its real meaning and having seen that there's something other than worldly life, that one can have a spiritual path, that's when faith, confidence, trust and devotion can arise. Having heard something that sounds true and can be practiced. In other words, it can be understood with one's intelligence, it can be practiced, and it can also prove that it's actually correct through one's own practice. From that, then, joy arises. The joy of practicing, the joy of having found something which is other than worldly, of having found something that is independent of worldly conditions, strictly dependent upon inner conditions. Now that joy is absolutely essential for sitting down on the pillow. Because if one sits down on the pillow, either because one has heard that it could be all right, or with a sort of feeling of again having to go through this, through with this, and suffering from it, nothing much is going to happen. On the contrary, the uh, suffering is going to increase because one has the proof of it, it's there. And um, one may even feel coerced into doing it. Well, none of that has any value at all. On the contrary, 
it has very often the effect of turning one off this practice. It's too difficult, it takes too long, it's, um, there must be an easier way. Um, my friends have tried something else, maybe I should try that. Maybe I can just be happy by enjoying myself, hedonism, whatever. Any kind of rationalization. And all of it, of course, quite understandable and due to the fact that the joy of practice hasn't arisen. But the joy of practice does not necessarily only arise when the meditation has become successful because it needs the joy of practice in order to become successful. Catch 22 again. So we have to have that full understanding first of those first three steps. What Dukkha really is, finding confidence and devotion in other than worldly endeavors, with which we are only too familiar, and being absolutely joyful about the fact that such a thing is possible. Whether the knees hurt or whether the mind wanders, there's nothing to do with it. It is possible. Such a way is actually open to us. It is here. When that arises, then the mind has a base on which to base itself. When that joy has come, the joy of being here and sitting down and doing it, the base that the mind then has helps it not to waver so much. And when it doesn't waver so much, because it has found a certain foundation of happiness, then concentration can arise. As I have explained many times before and will probably say many times again, all methods are just methods. They are not the meditation itself. Meditation starts with calm and insight. It doesn't start with a method. But we have to have a method. Like we need a hook to hang the hat on, we have to have a method to hang the mind on. But the meditation means calm and insight. So it's either calm arising or insight arising. Method is only method. And we need it. We use it. And we use it to the best advantage. There are most methods that we can find are geared towards both calm and insight. So they are suitable for both practices. However, according to the Buddha's teaching, and as we have probably all heard before, first there has to be some calm. So this particular sutta discourse, as all the others that concern meditation, goes through the meditative absorption. So after this joy has arisen, so that concentration can come, now comes a meditative absorption. Only after they have been practiced, 
is the next step inside. Now, obviously, while we are trying to get concentrated, we use what arises to gain some insight. But the depth of insight can only arise with the depth of absorption. The two go together. The mind that is still flitting about on the meditation subject, not staying on it, it will flit about on the inside subject just as much. It just doesn't have the capacity yet, doesn't have the ability yet. So while we're practicing with our methods, we try to gain the absorption. Absorption means that the mind becomes really absorbed in itself. Now, the very first absorption, I explained the very first evening. I will briefly mention it again because I dare say most of it is forgotten by now, which is only natural. Or maybe it wasn't even clear at the time that that was the first absorption. I was explaining in the very first evening that when the mind becomes totally concentrated, that an automatic purification process takes place. Namely, that the five factors of the very first meditative absorption, absorption counteract the five hindrances. Now, the five hindrances are our, so to say, um, heritage. We all come equipped with them. But the purification process is possible, and it has to be done also in daily life. However, if we have the opportunity to strengthen that purification through our meditation, then we have a so much easier path and so much quicker and so much more pleasant. Everything falls into place because the mind doesn't have so many obstructions anymore. It doesn't feel so unwieldy. It doesn't feel so connected to grief and despair and blame and uh, resentment and worry. All that has already lightened up. So not only is life more pleasant, the whole spiritual path is a pleasant one. The very first absorption, and I'm not going to repeat all the hindrances and the... Um, uh, factors of the absorption. But the very first absorption is an experience of pleasant feelings. Now, in practice, what happens is that the mind becomes concentrated enough without thinking for at least uh, some period of time. It's impossible to say exactly for how long without any thinking, so that because of the mind's calmness and very 
subtle movement because the mind which is aware is always moving but it's very subtle the mind that is thinking is very grossly moving the breath becomes very fine and subtle because of that because it's totally connected to mind when the breath becomes very fine and subtle it is also difficult to find now with the attention on our sensations the same aspect can arise the concentration brings about that the mind becomes very fine and subtle when that happens either with attention on the sensation or with the attention on the breath a very very pleasant feeling arises which can have many different uh, manifestations it doesn't have to be the same feeling for everybody nor does it have to be the same feeling at each sitting sometimes it is very strong tingling sometimes it is um a feeling of great lightness of opposing heaviness as if the body is uh, floating other times it's a feeling of transparency other times it's a feeling of um pulsating vibration sometimes it's sh- a showering feeling like a shower sometimes it's less strong sometimes it's mild 17 different feelings sensations are mentioned in the visuddhimagga in the path of purification there are more than 17 so whatever it is whoever experiences it is quite sure that this is extremely pleasant there's no doubt about it and when it happens for the very first time the mind very often reacts with oh isn't that nice or what was that or um, goodness maybe i shouldn't pay attention to this any number of reactions which of course um, immediately stop the concentration all it needs is to realize what it is that's all it needs and the second time the mind can't stay on it at the very first instance one needs if you remember i was talking about the five factors initial application and sustained application which means one puts the mind on the meditation subject which at that time becomes the pleasant feeling the breath or the sensations are forgotten this pleasant feeling is also a sensation but it is a much stronger qualitatively and quantitatively much more pronounced than any other sensation that we have ever had the first four of the meditative absorptions are called the fine material absorptions the rupa jhanas and they are called that because they are states of um, experiences with which we are familiar on a grosser basis on a more worldly level we are familiar with pleasant sensations we've all had them but this is a pleasant sensation which has so much more impact because it's so much stronger and also we realize without even telling ourselves that this pleasant sensation has arisen 
without any touch contact. There's no sense contact at all. This has arisen strictly because of concentration and because we have touched upon our own inner purity. And if this purity were to last and does not dissipate all the time because of our thinking processes, we can touch upon that any time we wish and have that feeling arise any time we wish. So we know already that this, although we are familiar with pleasant sensations, that this is a totally different one. And together with it arises, of course, happiness. It is totally impossible to be unhappy at the time when one has such pleasant feelings. Now that pleasant feeling can be so mild that it's just well-being. That also can happen. But it is a very strong feeling of well-being caused by nothing except concentration. So when this has arisen, we have finally stuck the key into the keyhole, unlocked the door, and stepped inside that house of eight rooms. The key is a meditation method which we were using, and we have to hang on to it long enough, and we have to hold it steady enough to get it into the keyhole. Once it's opened, and we keep on practicing, it will stay open. We may not need the method at all, or just very briefly. One day, methods will go where methods belong. They, they can be forgotten. However, if one does not continue the practice very diligently, one will always have to come back to using the method. The calm, concentrated state is very easily lost. It has to have always the repetition of daily practice. However, if one has got to this state, at least even that one of very pleasant feeling with which happiness arises at the same time, it is uh, usually uh, the case that the person continues practicing. Because this is then also a very clear indication that we are getting something that we've been looking for in a totally different place than we've been looking for it. We've been looking out there in the world to get what we want from people and things, from situations and experiences, and we never got it. And now we've got it once the mind is concentrated enough. And now, having got it, it's an obvious understanding immediately that out there it isn't possible to get it, in here it is, so we'll have to keep on attending to in here, which means to continue practicing. It is even people who do gain access to it sometimes stop practicing, but they usually start again. Others stop and start all the time and very often stop altogether because 
they don't see there's no fulfillment in it. This is something where the fulfillment is at least already glimpsed. We can see that there's something happening. So now with this happiness that has arisen at the same time, we know already that, or we can discern without even telling ourselves, that the sensation which was very pleasurable is a much grosser aspect of our experience than the emotion. And therefore, we can easily let go of the sensation and could put it into the background of our attention and let the happiness and joy come into the foreground of the attention. It has already arisen. They're both there simultaneously. But now we can just attend to the emotional feeling, which is uh, of a finer uh, a f a finer uh, quality than the sensation which was physically arisen. So as, the, as we attend to the joy, we can lose the initial and sustained application because the initial application was already there when we attended to the physical feeling and the sustaining of the application is no longer necessary because the joy is there and we can stay with it. It's uh, very easy because it's something we've been looking for all the time. So if one finally gets what one wants, one's not going to wander off to somewhere else. So to stay with it is no problem. At that point, which is the second absorption, self-confidence arises. Self-confidence that, first of all, one can meditate. Secondly, that the Buddha's teaching is correct, that meditation is the best thing one can do for oneself, that this is the direction to go, there's nothing more worthwhile to be done, and one feels quite confident about oneself and the path. It is impossible to deny one's own experience. If one has very clear and pronounced joy, which is um, in, in effect taking over one's whole being, it's impossible not to understand that this is worthwhile doing. On the contrary, one is quite, at first, quite overwhelmed by it. And the self-confidence which arises is not only into the spiritual path, but there's another self-confidence which comes with it, and it's not a superiority feeling. It's a self-confidence that no matter what happens in the world to oneself, one has a place to go to where there's joy. One doesn't have to wait for someone else to do something nice. One doesn't have to wait till one can buy it, because that kind of joy can't be bought anyway. One doesn't have to wait till one can see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell it, or think it. One knows where to get it. And no matter what happens in the world, all one has to do when one has practiced a little longer and becomes 
are adept at it is to sit down and practice a meditation and there it is. This self-confidence makes all the vicissitudes of life far less um, far less strong and um, they have far less impact on oneself. They're just happening. That's all. From a practice standpoint, it is important that no matter what arises, whether it's the first or the second, the um, pleasant feeling or the joy, when it is finished, to look at the impermanence of it, the dissolving of it. Now, we all know, we are quite acquainted with the fact that everything is impermanent. But we all live as if that wasn't so. As if there's something permanent that we've got to grasp and to gain, to become and to get. And there is nothing like that. Well, because our understanding of impermanence at this period in time is superficial. It's practically only intellectual. I mean, nobody's going to deny that we're all going to die. But who lives accordingly? The question is not whether we know that we're going to die. We all do. You can ask the proverbial man on the street whether he's going to die, and he'll say yes and just wander on. Everybody knows it, and everybody is afraid of it. But to live accordingly means that we live in this moment only because we know we haven't got any others and we also know the urgency of growth, of spiritual growth. Otherwise, we're always going to think tomorrow, when I feel better, when uh, I have more time, when it becomes a little easier, when is that? It's always the same. But when our mind has become calm, joyful, and independent of its sense contacts, and then it tends to the impermanence, to the dissolving of this very, very pleasant experience. It has a totally different consciousness that looks at this impermanence. It doesn't look at anything else at that time. It's totally concentrated. And because it has found a base for its own happiness, the impermanence which is so clear, there's no resistance to it. And because there's no resistance to it, it can really sink in deeply. At that time, the seeing of impermanence can, of course, also generate the feeling, oh, what a pity. But immediately one must know that that's nothing but clinging. And as soon as one has seen that, and again has gone back to watching this dissolving of the pleasant feeling, 
one have an insight into the fact that pleasant or unpleasant, all dukkha, because it doesn't remain. Dukkha doesn't mean pain, grief, and lamentation only. It means you can't keep it. You know the old saying, you can't take it with you. Well, you can't even take it with you to the next moment. It's already gone. And at that time, the mind, being happy and at ease, and totally concentrated, can delve into impermanence as a release and relief, and not as a threat. The reason we don't really want to know about it, and we really would prefer to forget about it because we feel it threatening. Threatening to what? Certainly not to our happiness because we haven't got our happiness yet. So what is it threatening? It's threatening all our viewpoints, all our ideas, all what we're striving for. So we don't really want to know so much about impermanence. We have to admit it because otherwise we'd sound foolish. Although I have also come across one or two people uh, here and there who won't even admit it. But uh, that's very rare. Usually we at least admit it because it sounds too foolish to deny it. But we don't really want to know the basis, the basis of it and the uh, underlying reality of it. But when the mind is happy, joyful, at peace, concentrated, it doesn't mind knowing about it because it's happy anyway. It's not looking for anything. So in seeing this impermanence then makes a far greater impact on the mind and it means something. It is a personal experience. And when it becomes a personal experience, it's insight. And that's why the Buddha always put the meditative absorptions before the insight. The mind that isn't absorbed isn't going to get down in there and really see it. Now, the meditative absorptions are much easier than one might think. It seems there's always this idea, oh, this is so difficult because I can't keep my mind on the breath. Well, there are many other ways of getting concentrated. And one of them we did today. Loving-kindness meditation is also a, a method of getting concentrated if the feeling arises. If the feeling arises strongly, that too can lead one in there. The method which we use today I will teach in another way, which will also is also an entry into the first absorption. Once having gained that entry into that house, obviously all eight rooms are open for inspection. We don't need the key again because we've opened the door. Some of the rooms, the first three in particular, are very easy to enter into. The fourth one becomes a little difficult. The joy is understood to be also still coarse. And therefore, the mind is able to let go of it and become peaceful and contented. That is the first time 
when we have an inkling what it means to be calm. The contentment and the peacefulness which arises at that time is a totally wishless. There's no wishes left. And because of that, there's no dukkha at that time. Naturally, only at the time of meditation. A simile has been used to describe the first four absorptions. And I will tell you that simile to make it a little clearer. A person wanders through the desert and has no uh, water and is becoming thirstier and thirstier and is absolutely parched and finally sees in the distance a little pond of water and so gets all excited, pleasurably excited about it. So he draws nearer to that pond of water and stands at the edge and is really happy that he's there. Then he bends down to drink the water, completely contented that he got what he wanted. And then he goes under the nearest tree in the shade to lie down and rest. Being parched in the desert without any water is our search for peace and happiness. And the desert is out there in the world. It has many temptations and it has what we could call fool's gold. It glitters, but it hasn't got any value. It has only momentary pleasure to give. In that desert out there, we get tense, we get uh, fearful that we'll never find it. We have stresses and strains. And again and again, we like to relieve ourselves by distracting ourselves from that path through the desert. But not for very long, we're always at it again. Now when we come to the very first absorption, we see the pool of water in the distance and we get this pleasurable excitement that there it is. Now we know it exists. And we draw near to it and stand at the edge and are utterly happy that we're there. That's our second step. We have now been able to concentrate long enough on this feeling so that the happiness comes to the fore. And then the next step is that we have now experienced that what we've been looking for, namely inner joy and there's total contentment. We got what we wanted. And as we realize we've got what we wanted and have that peace and contentment within, we can now rest from our labors of searching for that which we knew existed somewhere, sometime, somehow, but which we couldn't find in all those endeavors which we had been doing. That rest, it's the fourth meditative absorption. 
and it is it has of all five factors only the last one left now the first two were initial application and sustained application they go away when the joy comes when when the joy has been left behind and the contentment comes then we leave the uh, pleasant feelings behind with the contentment there is only the uh, the joy factor and the one pointedness there and then only the one pointedness so when we get to the fourth one which is that rest that we can take that is absolute peacefulness a total equanimity the equanimity arises because the mind does not want anything anymore it is not as exciting as the joy and the pleasant feeling nor like the peace and the contentment because it has a depth of absorption in it where even the um, observer who's been observing all these other things has been eliminated almost completely not totally so there is absolute rest and that is the regeneration of mental energy and this is essential with that mental energy then wisdom can arise without that mental energy the mind just hasn't got the strength it gets constantly sidetracked into all sorts of ideas and all sorts of uh, uh, wishes and desires and all sorts of um, byways where it loses itself in the sense contact only when the mind has gained this strength that it gets from this absolute rest where nothing is happening finally nothing is happening there's only this peacefulness the mind can gain the strength that we give the body every night when it will lay it to sleep the mind never gets that regeneration here is the possibility given from the contentment where sounds are still heard and the observer is still there to that absolute depth of peace and one pointedness is a fairly <laughs> difficult transition whereas the first three are quite easy transitions now fairly difficult is also a generalization which does not apply to everyone some people do it easily some people find it difficult the difficulty arises because the mind the observer is prone to describe what's happening if we do that nothing will happen the description precludes the experience we have to first experience now in all these experiences we have to first go through the experience and then realize what it was if we do not know anything about it it's highly likely that we will not appreciate the experience it is necessary to have some prior knowledge and 
then when it does, when the experience does come about, we have also the understanding of it. As the mind is able to get into the first three states, it gets a deeper and deeper understanding of impermanence because we cannot possibly keep those states. We cannot walk around in daily life in an absorption. We would be totally useless. So this experience also not only tells us the impermanence, but it also tells us that this isn't the goal of the meditation, but it is the path of the meditation. However, there's a residue of this experience, of these experiences. We know when we have practiced properly that we can return to it. We do not have to worry our heads about the future. We do not have to regret the past. We do not have to be threatened by others or by uh, our surroundings if they're not exactly as we want them. We don't have to have any of those difficulties within where soon as we sit down on the pillow again, we know we can get back in there. So in our daily life, having that knowledge within, we are not so much bothered by the difficulties which everyone confronts. And eventually, the impermanence having taken hold as a personal experience gives us the insight that whatever happens, it's just happening. That's all. We don't have to interfere. We don't have to straighten it out. We don't have to resist. We can just watch it flow by. It will just dissipate like everything else. Being able to have this kind of meditative practice is a jewel without price. This is one of the wonders of our mind which cannot be bought or sold or given or taken. It can just be practiced. And having come to a meditation course is the right and proper way to start that practice. And if the mind is still thinking a lot and not attending to its meditation subject. There are several ways of helping oneself. One is start out with determination. Have a really strong determination to attend to the meditation subject. Drop that one. First, have it, but don't keep it in mind because if you keep it in mind, you can't concentrate. But that determination carries one through. Second thing is, stay within. Don't keep going out. Thoughts are always going out somewhere. There's something to think 
about which is outside of oneself. Don't. Stay within. There's nothing to think about within. There's only to feel it. So get to the feeling. When the breath goes in, there's a feeling. When the breath goes out, there's a feeling. As soon as the mind wanders away, it's going outside. Let it go inside. Again and again, pull it in, not out. If you want to keep it within, watch the breath within the body. Watch the, the sensations within the body. Become aware of within. All that, what we can gain in meditation, what we can experience in meditation, all these states of meditation are all within. There's nothing out there. Whatever's out there is all made up in our consciousness. There's never any absolute truth in any of it. None of us see the world alike. We all make up our own world. Arguing about it is absurd because we all have a different perception. So whatever is out there, it doesn't have real value. It has a made-up value, but not a real one. That's what within, that has real value. Because we carry within not only our ability to meditate, first of all, when you first start out, and then attending more and more to what everything that's happening within, whether it's this with the breath or with the sensations. Now, when we watch the sensations going through the body with the sweeping, that is a very great help also to stay within. And from that, it's also quite possible and not so difficult to get to the very first state of the absorptions. It has often been thought, I don't know why, that this is very difficult to do. I can assure you it isn't. It's actually much easier than thinking. Thinking is much more difficult, if the thinking is supposed to make any sense. The discursive thinking which is happening in the meditation, of course, that is only letting the mind run wild. So our very first entry is into sensation, second is emotional feeling, third is also an emotion, but a totally peaceful one, and the first, fourth one is the one-pointedness and the equanimity and the peacefulness, which can be described, if at all, that one is allowing oneself to drown in it. Now, by doing that and experiencing that peace, one gets the very first inkling of the fact that real peace is only possible when we let go of ego. Because allowing oneself to drown in it means that for that time, the ego consciousness has been greatly removed, not completely, but greatly removed. And having experienced this totality of peace gives one then 
a very clear message that without ego consciousness can be peace. With it, there never will be. And that prepares one as one needs to be, pe- be prepared for the continuation of this path because eventually it has to lead to letting go of the whole illusion. Maybe you'd like to ask some questions. Yes. Well, I had that moment of concentration What did you use to bring it about? What sort of visual image? A golden wheel in motion. Yes. Don't use it in motion. A golden wheel that is stationary. A golden disc, which is stationary, don't use it. Don't use it in motion. That doesn't work. That was accidental. Um, a golden disc, which you uh, put outside of yourself, and then bring it nearer and nearer so that it's inside of yourself. Okay. It's a, one of the forty me- meditation methods. But don't make it move. Make it absolutely stationary. Okay, and try that and see if it works. Mm-hmm. You, do, you had just a moment of that pleasant feeling, did you? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you got quite uh, surprised by it, so couldn't stay on it. Yes, it is striking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, we'll try with that. All right, yes. Through it, please. Through pain, yes. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What did you experience today? What did you experience? Which part of it? I experienced uh, vibration. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't suggest to use pain unnecessarily as a meditation subject, but when you have it, it's very good to use it. But uh, what were you using the first time? You were using the breath. You see, what you need to do is when it does arise, at the end, as I said, you have to see the impermanence of it, but also when it hasn't become established yet as a proper meditation procedure, you have to do a recapitulation. Um, Before you open your eyes, you first look at the impermanence of it as it dissolves, and then you recapitulate. What exactly did I do to get into this state so that you can always do it, so that you have an absolute pathway, and that it isn't a a sort of a lucky accident or that one time it's like this and one time it's like that, because one can establish an absolute pathway to always do it. And uh, naturally one has to keep on practicing. Otherwise, get lost. Impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, first you've got to establish the the initial. Uh, ability to do it and then to keep it going um, I believe that the minimum is two hours a day uh, for most paper uh, to just keep it going not to advance in it but just to keep it going Um, I think that will probably be sufficient but anything less than that I don't think anybody can maintain it the mind just isn't able to keep stretched like that It's a a stretching of the the limitations of the mind. It's an expansion. And uh, that has to be kept going, that expansion. So the first thing to do at this time is to establish how you get in there. And pain is not exactly the most um, uh, desirable meditation subject. It's uh, because it can often become rather uh, too unpleasant to use. So find out how you get in there and uh, see what the best way is to do it. Everybody has personal triggers. So it's very important to realize when does it arise? Did I sit differently? 
Did I eat differently? Did I think differently? Did I uh, not eat? Did I eat more or less? Did I um, um, have a stronger determination? What did I do? Did I have my breath as my meditation subject? Whatever it is, just check out every little item and see how it, how it came about. And then it becomes a practice and not an accident. It's not, not good enough when it's an accident. Yes. No, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Everybody would love that. <laughs> no. These two hours are strictly for being able to, to sustain the concentrated state which leads into the absorptions. In other words, to sustain the absorptions. Uh, to um, use everything you do uh, in a way which is helpful for meditation means using mindfulness. You cannot possibly talk while you're in the absorptions. It's an impossibility. You can't do anything other than being in there. So the two hours are to sustaining that and the rest of the time being mindful and attentive to what one is doing. That is uh, very good. And that's nothing but, a, a, let's say, an additional support. And that should go on not two hours a day, but that should go on all the time when one is awake something like maybe 10 hours or 12 hours a day to be mindful. I mean, as much as one can, naturally. Okay, what else? Anything else? Yes. Well, when one wants something, one can't concentrate. It's strictly concentration, that's all. That's all that's, that can be done. But the determination to become concentrated is a help. But to expect something and to sit there looking for it, well, I mean, that's childish, isn't it? Can't be done. I mean, obviously one has to concentrate to do it. But as one becomes more practiced at it, there's no nothing necessary. One just sits down and that's it. There's no wanting, no nothing. It's not even necessary to concentrate. I mean, the mind just knows what it has to do. It's a, you see, the mind habitually thinks because it's always, no, always used to that. But if it becomes used to, in the meditation period, to become concentrated and absorbed, well, it does that. That's its habit then. It's a habitual way of, of using the mind. But when one, when one sits down and wants something, well, that's all one is doing then, is wanting something, isn't it? Well, that can't bring anything. I mean, we don't want the breath, or we don't want the concentration, we're trying to, to practice it. So it's a practice part. We're just practicing it. Practicing again and again to be there, to be with it. And... Uh, it doesn't hurt to have 
a bit of an idea where meditation leads. In fact, one should have a very good idea where it leads to. Because um, in my personal experience of 13 years of teaching, I have found that people who don't know where it leads to are going around in circles very often. They haven't got a clue what's supposed to, what they're supposed to be doing. don't even know the difference between calm and insight. So it's very important to have a, a knowledge of what is possible and what the mind uh, is capable of doing and where it can lead to. And then just go ahead with the practice. And then just do it. That's all. The more we practice, the easier it becomes. Yes. Do I find it easier? <laughs> it takes it takes practice. It takes practice. Uh, there are people who. Um, have a facility to go into that. These are people that um, um, with great deal of devotion and uh, uh, trust and faith, um, these are people that find that easier. Uh, people who are analytical find it much more difficult. So uh, some people can slip into it, as you're saying, um, but uh, most people have to practice. To do that. It seems like another practice that I'm referring to is first of all that the first three are becoming so um, exact and they are so um, easy to do that there's no difficulty at all and each one you can stay on each one for as long as you wish and come out of each one at the time you wish and even jump from one to three and from three to two and so forth in other words become master of the first three but that is not um, the whole of the practice. The next step is to be able to let go of that idea or that person that one ha thinks one is. That is the practice. To go from the third one, which is contentment, which is very nice to have, to something which is not anymore even nice to have, which is that absolute peace. And that means that one has to practice to let go of this idea of I am the one that's getting it. <laughs> so the second when I came back from walking I tried I got back 
I couldn't even get I couldn't even get the penguin to go over or half my body to go over half. And I just after trying for a while and going back to the sweeping and everything else, I just let go of it and got into a space which I now recognize from what you're talking about, the transparency. Mm-hmm. Just not being there. Of course. Yeah, in the fourth one, you are not aware uh, of the observer. He's still there, but you're not ob- uh, aware of him. And in order to let go of that, it means that one really has to practice to let go of the one who wants to have all these pleasant states or who is enjoying these pleasant states. That's why the difficulty from the third to the fourth one is greater. The first three, well, it's great, isn't it? I'm getting all these wonderful states. <laughs> yes, I will tell them tomorrow. <laughs> there, there are four more. Yes. Yes. That's good. No, 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 neither nor. Uh, when you have the eyes open and you put them down, have the eyes directed downwards, they automatically go in front of your foot. You don't want to look at the foot, it's very disturbing. So it automatically goes in front. And besides, if you do look at it, it's a disturbing um, thing for your mindfulness of the movement. So you really are attending to the movement and the feeling which is are connected to that movement. You see, when you're down, it's a different feeling, up, different, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> well, I would say, I said rising, carrying, putting. But it, you can use anything. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, but they do that automatically. Yes, well, you see, the words are a crutch. It is, uh, the, uh, the ideal way is to just know the movement and the feeling that's atten- attached to that. Yeah, that's fine. The rhythm makes it easier. Only don't, be- it mustn't become mechanical. When the rhythm is going and one thinks one is really on the foot and meanwhile one is attending to all the sounds and all the uh, smells and everything else that's going on around one. So not become mechanical about it. But if you don't need the words, you don't have to use those words. They're only a crutch. They're only to, to help one not become discursive. So it's actually better to just use the movement and the feeling if you can. And the feeling is something that arises uh, spontaneously with the different movements one makes. So those are the best thing to focus on.
Anything else? Yes. <laughs> to become absorbed is easier than to start thinking. <laughs> it's much, um, well, I don't know about easier, but certainly more pleasurable. <laughs> it's, um, it's far more, it's more peaceful. It is, well, it is also easier to have the mind at rest than having the mind always churning around with something, whatever it may be. So, um, for an ease for the mind, for an ease of living, the, uh, to have the ability to become absorbed, even just the first three, is a, is a great uh, advantage. Thinking is actually dukkha. It's got continuous friction in it. And the more one thinks, the more dukkha. Because it's constantly moving. You see, the mind, as such, is always moving because nothing is stationary in the whole of the universe. But the thinking movement is coarse, whereas the awareness movement is subtle and fine. So it's much more restful. Is that clear? Does that answer your question? No, <laughs> wrong thinking is a hindrance. <laughs> uh, one of the, uh, uh, the thinking as such is not a hindrance to one's, uh, it's not a defilement, but it's dukkha. It's, it's not, a, it's not uh, something that one can, it's uh, not peaceful. So when the meditation becomes uh, concentrated, thinking stops. Naturally, in daily living, we've got to think. Huh? Otherwise, we can't uh, do our jobs. Yes. Well, the breath has no part of the jhanas. I mean, you're obviously still breathing, otherwise, you know, but uh, there's no attention paid to the breath. Knowing what? Knowing the pleasurable feeling or knowing the breath? It's got to know something, huh? I mean, it's got to be something. So what is it? Yeah, awareness of what? 
Like what? What's left over? I don't know. I mean, what we know, there's got to be something to know, no? But the words, I think possibly, I'm not sure, but what you are referring to could be that word that we use, knowing only. That's mindfulness, knowing only. Not judging. Knowing only means not judging, not uh, um, uh, having any um, analysis about it, but knowing exactly what's happening, whatever it may be, anything. So we, we are often describing mindfulness as knowing only. But it has absolutely nothing to do with a meditative absorption. And it's uh, highly unlikely that you would ever have heard anybody talk about them in the West. It's somehow got a taboo on it. And uh, it was the way the Buddha practiced. And it was the way the Buddha taught. And it is the one way of having, um, of having your, the meditation practice bring that what everybody is looking for. That's why, that's why people get, start meditating. Because that's what they want. And it's certainly within one's reach. The only, the only thing to remember is to see its impermanence and not get caught up in thinking, oh, what a pity. Now I've got to sit again. <laughs> but to see the impermanence quite clearly. So um, knowing only, yes, mindfulness. No judging, no explaining, no analyzing, just knowing. That would probably, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that would have had that connotation in it. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now think of a person you really love, anyone. Let that feeling of love for that particular person arise in you and reach out to that person with that feeling. And as you are aware of that feeling within, direct exactly that same feeling towards yourself. Fill yourself with love, surround yourself with love. Be totally embedded in it.
and now direct exactly that same feeling to the person nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her completely with that loving feeling. Surround him or her with it. now direct exactly that same feeling to everyone here. Embrace everyone with that love, exactly the same as you have for that one beloved person, and fill everyone here with that same love. Bring that beloved person to mind again and again so that that feeling is clear and accessible. And now think of your parents and reach out to them with that same loving feeling, filling them and surrounding them with it. And now direct that same feeling to all the people who are nearest and dearest to you. Bring that same beloved person to mind again, becoming aware of that strong feeling of love, and then reach out to all the people who are nearest and dearest to you with that same feeling. Think of all your friends and again have that same feeling of love for them. Feel how your heart opens and expands and brings that warmth to your friends, filling them with the love and surrounding them with it. And now think of those people whom you see here and there, neighbors, people at work, on the street, wherever you meet them or see them, 
when traveling, those you have spoken to and those you have only seen, and let exactly that same feeling of love reach out to them, filling them, embracing them, holding them to your heart. Now open your heart as wide as you can and let this feeling of love that you know and have experienced reach out to people everywhere near and far. Those that you have met, those that you have just seen and those that you have never met. Just think of people wherever you can visualize or conjure them up. And let this feeling expand and enlarge so that you can hold to your heart so many beings, so many people. Think of that beloved person again. Let that feeling of love rise up in you. Let it expand and enlarge, making it possible to love beings everywhere. Now put your attention back on yourself. Let this loving feeling fill you, surround you, drench you.